Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Kuninagel podcast series, Shipping Insights. I'm your host, Sarah Vollmer, Vice President of Global Sea Logistics Customer Engagement and Events at Kuninagel. You and I are about to embark on an exciting journey through the world of sea freight. I've been fortunate enough to have a front row seat to this industry's ups and downs over the past two decades. Now it's my pleasure to bring to you the latest developments, innovations, and solutions in this dynamic industry. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just curious about logistics, get ready for enlightening conversations and expert insights in our latest episode. Let's dive into the fascinating world of sea freight together and welcome our latest guest. And today we're talking about the history of container shipping. Yes, there actually is a history behind this whole wacky world that we all live in here in the world of sea freight. And with me today is my special guest, Bill Rooney, who is the Vice President of Strategic Development for Sea Logistics, Kuninaga, North America. Bill, thank you for coming on to our show. It's great to be here. Uh, it's a great program and uh, looking forward to having a chat. All right. So let's let's dive into it because I'm sure some people are thinking history. Well, how is a history even interesting of, of container shipping? So we're where did it all begin, though? How, how did this how did this box, in essence, transform our lives? Where did it start? Well, before I say anything about that, I just I think I would say up front that it's I think it's important for everybody who listens to this, everybody who works for our company, to understand the history. Mm-hmm. You're going to work in this business; it's it's uh, helpful, and uh, I mean beyond being interesting to know the history of the business, but. Where containerized shipping really started was in 1956. Uh, I guess I would call it an innovation rather than invention okay. uh, of containerized shipping. It was started by a fellow named Malcolm McLean, who was a trucker from North Carolina, ran a trucking company who had the idea of when he looked at the older way of moving cargo by ships, which was cranes and slings and a lot of longshore mm-hmm. with hooks and that kind of thing. He looked at it and said, boy, I you know, there's got to be a better way to do that. And the better way was to basically lift truck bodies. He was a trucker to lift truck bodies f- full of cargo from the pier to the, to the vessel or from the vessel to the, to the pier. And he started the company in the first sailing, uh, by uh, via a vessel called the ideal X sailed from, uh, uh Newark, New Jersey, okay. uh, to Houston with 58 containers of cargo. And it was shipped to the IDLX was a converted tanker where they put a platform on top of the ship and all of the 58 containers rode on top of uh, this converted tanker. Okay. That was, that was the beginning. And it's interesting to note that it took 10 years in 10 years later, in 1966, Sealand went international and began services to both uh, North Europe and Asia. Okay. So why do you think it took 10 years in that, that span of the, let's call it, the idea, ideation of, of, a, of a container, right, to then yeah. go from a domestic product to an international product. Yeah. Uh, you know, my gut reaction is, in reality, that's not so long, <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> um, it's a good question. Why didn't it take five or even two? Right. Because it was such a an incredible innovation, but mm-hmm. it just took time for people who are used to doing, people necessarily don't like change necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had to have different kinds of ships. 
Okay. Right? right? You had to have cranes in the port. You had to have a lot of things that backed up the system. And I think that also took some time. The original ships had cranes on board the ships and that kind of thing. But you had you had a lot of considerations, not just, you know, just the concept, but then you had to have the right ships. You had to have the longshore label that uh, labor that could do it. You had to have the right terminals with cranes and that kind of thing. So it took it took some time. Took a minute. Dare I ask before we go further? Where were you at this time? I was uh, wearing, as I said at the some of my sessions, uh, high top PF flyers in the fifties. <laughs> so in 1956, I was seven. So <laughs> I was not working yet. No, uh, not not worried about. This, not worried this about it. I, I got in the business in seven <laughs> in seventy three, so uh, it was uh, still in its infancy. Uh, even when I got in, the ships were much 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 smaller. I used I, in those days. I was writing financial proposals to to build new ships that had twelve hundred boxes on them or eighteen hundred boxes on them, not twenty three twenty four thousand boxes like they have today. Right. So you mentioned Sealand here was was the first right. with the international routes. Um, would you tell me a little bit more about Sealand? They um, again, the company uh, originally was named Pan Atlantic Steamship. Malcolm McLean bought a company called Pan Atlantic Steamship. They pretty early on changed the name to Sealand because that's what he was selling. Okay. He named it after the product, right? It was Sea and Land Service, and, and they got to tell you they they had a lot of people who had been in the trucking business. And like I said, I worked for them for about 25 years, and I and I knew and still know some people who were there at the beginning. Okay. And he he hired very very good people, very talented people, and who were aggressive about pushing that concept forward. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. So, in your perspective, how did how did this change the world? I mean, it did change the world, yeah. right? So, what what were some of the what are some of the aspects of, of this? I think what I should I think what I should, I should say up front is, without a doubt, and this is not an exaggeration, there are few things in the history of anything that have changed the world as much as containerized shipping has. And I think, again, I think people that work in this industry and specifically for our company, I think, should understand that. A remarkable, remarkable change to the world. And it's, and it's sort of like the, the change when the world went from sailing ships mm-hmm. to steam-powered ships. Think of that difference where the difference that made, this made as much of a difference in, in, uh, in the business, and that business thereby you know, changed the world. And I think the most graphic change, what happened in Western Europe, largely the, the, the wealthier countries, Western Europe and North America in particular, what happened over a long period of time, but transition to the other parts of the world were, were manufacturing, basically. Okay. And basic, for example, best example is China becoming the manufacturer of the world, but not just China, but a lot of other places. And the most, I think, eye-popping statistic is if you look at, there's a standard statistic uh, that UN uses and other organizations uses, the number of people who live and have lived in abject poverty. Okay. And if you look at I've seen these charts are pretty common. And you look at a chart that, say, starts in 1990 and ends 2019, 2020. Over that period, about a billion and a half people moved from being moved out of being in abject poverty. Abject poverty was defined as remarkably as living on two dollars and 15 cents a day or less. Okay. 
And, and, and you say, well, what happened here? You yeah. have, basically, this is people in China. It's based in not China. It's, it's Eastern Asia and South Asia. So you're talking China and Korea and Japan and Vietnam. And, and then you have the subcontinent. And, and about a billion and a half people moved, you know, out of abject poverty. And that was, I don't know, it's not obviously not entirely, but a big, big part of the, the, that enabled that was containerized shipping because you could now produce things and, uh, you could produce things outside the United States, outside Western Europe at a much lower cost and move them quickly, reliably, safely at a reasonable cost to the destination markets in North America and Western Europe and elsewhere. It's really remarkable stuff. And everybody who works in this business should be proud of the fact that they're working in a business that, that accomplished something like that, right. which is really amazing. Right. Is that trajectory, is it still is it still in effect today, would you say, or at the I, same rate? It's a great question, and it's it's changing because the world has changed, mm-hmm. right? What has happened is, obviously, China is still very, very large in terms of its manufacturing capability, but for a variety of reasons, risk mitigation, lower wage costs, it has spread. A lot of it has spread to Southeast Asia. You're talking Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, places like that, and other places in the world, whether you're talking uh, parts of Africa, South America, where where various companies have gone to search out better economics or, or just as importantly, more markets. And so it's changed over time and it's, and it's continuing to change where now you're seeing more, I would say, intra-regional development as opposed to inter-regional development. So you see higher growth rates in intra-regional in Asia, that kind of thing, but it's still, uh, you know, the containerized shipping is still supporting all of that and helping all of that, uh, that activity take place at somewhat lower growth rates, mm-hmm. but but it's still happening, and it's and it's and it's in, it's enabling advances economically and for the people involved in various countries as it has over the last fifty years. Right. So, what's your take? So, in the last you know, call it five years. I mean, of course, we've been talking about it even longer than that. But the whole concept of nearshoring, right? Yeah, has really come into play. Um, and you know, you take the EU as an example of, of being able to source and produce products. Um, out on the, the eastern edge and, and whatnot, and that—I mean, isn't that going to have an impact here to the containerized shipping? Industry? Yeah, I, I think. But I think what, what the first thing you, you you can see is the average distance of a move has been going down. Okay. So you know, for at the beginning, right? I mean, the story I tell customers is when I was a little kid in the fifties, and I had my uh, high top brown. PF flyers, uh, you know, they, they basically had a supply chain that was 155 miles long from Boston to a town I lived in in Connecticut. And, but when I was buying uh, the same kind of items, athletic shoes for my kids uh, in the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, they basically, the supply chain then was 8,000 miles. What's been happening more recently, as, as you have more intra-regional development in Asian places like that, what we've seen is it, it doesn't mean the numbers the long distance numbers are really going down. They're growing at a somewhat lower pace. Okay. The shorter distances are growing at a somewhat faster pace. So you see somewhat of a reduction in the average length of a, of a cargo move. And that's not a bad thing. It's just indicative of, of, of these further development in these in the various regions of the world where you have this growth in intra-regional trade as opposed to the longer distance the longer. Uh, mm-hmm. inter-regional trades. Okay. What would you think uh, Malcolm Queen would say today? about the the state of uh, supply chain and containerized shipping that's a great question um (laughs) you know i i i don't 
I don't know. I mean, he was a great businessman, uh, changed the world like few other people have. I think he would like what, he, what he's seen. I think he would like the fact that what I've talked about before, about how it has changed the world in a very positive way. Right. I think he would appreciate that. And like I said, I worked with people who knew him personally. He was on the board of directors when I, when I started at, at Sealand. And I know people that worked for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, interesting, very interesting fellow, uh, a, sort of a big thinker. I think he would be proud and, and happy with it. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit here um, in our kind of our final segment about the financials behind the, this industry. Because I think that's something, you know, when, when I'm talking to customers, when yeah. you're talking to customers, there, there's always something going on. You know, the last few years, right, we've, we've seen some bankruptcies. There's been consolidation. Right. And there was a lot. And I think for the most part, there's been a lot of kind of, I don't know, dare I say, mystery behind, you know, <laughs> how are these, these guys and gals making money? And then... Of course, there was the last couple of years, which were just crazy times all around. Um, but but how does some of this work? I know there's actually some governments that, that are involved, right, with, with some right. of the carriers. And how did this come about and why did this come about? Um, I would say up front that the ocean carrier, containerized ocean carrier business has a very long history of very poor financial results. And by mm. financial results, I mean the return on the invested assets operating margins, that kind of thing. So that's that's number one. Obviously, that changed uh, remarkably in the last couple of years. Very, very different, obviously, performance in the last couple of years. But for most of the industry's history, almost all of it, Mm. very, very uh, low-level financial returns. Um, In large part, I would say for a couple of reasons, I'll mention two. One, it's at at the ocean carrier level, it's a commodity product. Mm -hmm. Customers do not see a distinction. Okay. between carrier A, B, C, D, and they don't see a distinction they're worth paying for. This is what you in economics you would call a, a, a very competitive and efficient efficient market that uh, you know, reaches equilibrium rates very quickly every day. So you, what you don't have in this business is any kind of excess profit for any reason at all because it's a very efficient market. Okay. So what then happened is you, you over still today, and over time, from the beginning, you've had governments heavily involved in the business, so even today you have the Chinese government with Costco and Double OCL, the Korean government is the major uh, equity holder in HMM. Uh, the Taiwanese government is, is heavily involved in, uh, in Yang Ming. The French government has been involved in this business. You could go down the list and whatever is not government owned has been family owned. And those two kind of entities really, more so the governments, don't make financial decisions the same way uh, publicly traded uh, companies make it where they're trying to maximize return or customer or, or shareholder value. Mm-hmm. They may be making legitimate, you know, if you're a government who's a big exporter, let's say like China, right. it's a it's a it's it's a legitimate reason to be uh, to be involved. I would guess, and to a certain degree, and I would I would say from their perspective, they're they over years were creating this factory to the world, and I'm sure very close to the top of their list of requirements is to make sure there was adequate capacity to move their products from origins to their many destinations around the world. Adequate capacity at, at reasonable or low rates. So what happened is you had a lot of over. The industry has been plagued from the beginning basically with overcapacity. And with overcapacity, what do you get in this business? You get lower rates. Right. And that's what produced over many, many, many years these very low returns. Their operating margins over many years 
ranged between, believe it or not, negative 3% and positive 3%. I tell people all the time, mm-hmm. that customers, any individual, including the two of us, right. if those were our KPI, personal KPI performances, we would be fired on the spot. So they've had very poor performance. Now, that's obviously changed radically in the last couple of years, but that's what's happened over many years. Uh, is but and, and it's sort of not surprising. I mean, it's a little like if you think back to the airline business. The okay. airline business was just like that for many until it got deregulated. Uh, you know, airline business is a horrible business to be involved in financially because they were all run by the governments, which were making decisions for different reasons, and they weren't they weren't out there to maximize shareholder value. So you ended up with with really pretty pretty disappointing uh, financial results. But that's been the truth. Uh, in this business, and obvi- but obviously the last couple of years, it's been very, very different with operating margins north of 50%, which is beyond private equity, beyond hedge right. fund margins. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, you know, Bill, you've been in this business uh, a minute, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so to say, mm-hmm. and you've had, you've had a variety of different roles, and, and you do speak like an economist, right? You are an economist. By I have uh, two degrees. In economics, uh, a bachelor's and a master's degree. I actually taught when I was in graduate school. Did you? I, I, I didn't know. That. Well, I was I was a teaching assistant okay. when I was uh, one of these very lowly paid people who who teach economics, and I taught uh, basic economics 101, 102, which is microeconomics and macroeconomics for the two years I was in graduate school. So I started, and I the first job I had was actually doing economic research research for the U.S. U.S. Department of Transportation. Oh. I did that for two years, yeah. Okay, all right. So, you know, where do we go from here? So we, we've had the great talk here on the history in terms of where did this get started? You know, how, how was the world impacted? And a little bit of just, you know, of more information on, on the financials. What happens next? Yeah, I, that's a good question. And I think that's like the $64,000 question that many people have, customers have, we have internally. And it, it's a topic I cover in the various uh, events I, I'm involved in with customers. You know, is the business, the business has gone through a near-death experience, basically, right. for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So if the business, and by that I mean carriers, uh, third-party logistics providers like ourselves and, and owners of cargo who ship it, have all gone through this near-death experience. And the big question is, okay, has the industry been affected by that. And I don't think anybody knows. Um, I, I can talk to both sides of that argument saying, yes, it's going to be different. You're going to have, you know, fewer carriers, not beyond what we have, but, but relative to further back history, there's fewer carriers, there are only 10 that make, you know, their, their material size uh, in the business. There are no longer five alliances. There are three, that kind of thing. The carriers have now broader revenue streams. They're carriers. They're operating terminals. Some of them are operating 3PL businesses. So that sort of speaks to, yeah, it'll be different. But I can also speak to the fact that the industry is entirely family or government-owned, which makes it different. I think um, if you look at what's happened to the rate levels, for example, in the Trans-Pacific business and the business from from Asia to Europe, they fell off a a, a, a cliff, uh, which indicates that okay, this this age old problem in the industry of overcapacity hasn't hasn't really changed. But again, on the on the, cha- on, the on the side that it may change is the, the carriers have been not in maybe those instances, but they have gotten somewhat better at real time capacity management through via blank sailings. So if they can get their act together there and do a better job as they were 
they were headed in that direction pre-COVID, if they can do a better job re- of real-time capacity management via this you know, blank, blank sailing process, they might change. And the change is going to be higher rates, uh, you know, because the rates have been traditionally very, very low. And, right. and the big change, the, the end result of, of a possible change, I think, will be somewhat higher rates in the future than we had uh, pre-COVID. Uh-oh, uh-oh. I think our audience just all took a collective gasp. Well, but, 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 but keep in mind, keep <laughs> so in mind, yeah, keep in mind, if you look at the assets involved, the ships, the container, I mean, a ship costs $125, $100 million, $150 million. If you look at the assets involved and you look at his, his history, you can say the carrier, not, it's not, a, I don't think it's, it's, a, it's off, if at all, is I think the carrier cost of capital has more traditionally been about 10%. So that's the cost of your debt and your equity. And, and, but the returns on those assets have been 3 or 4%. So back for 50 years on average, customers, people who buy uh, space from carriers, have been getting a 6 to 7% discount. Now, that doesn't mean we should feel sorry for the carriers. It's just a, right. fact, it's a fact of life that uh, ourselves and, and people who, who buy container space have been getting a discount. And I think it's, again, we... You know, it doesn't mean we need to do anything different. It's just, but I think it's helpful to understand that we have been getting a discount, and, and that may put us in a position of better appreciating where things may go in the future. And if they, and if the if the carry returns go from three to four percent to six or eight, that's going to be a problem because it's going to mean quite a bit higher rates. Right. All right. So I will leave it on on that note, Bill. Thank you so much. It's it's been a pleasure having you um, here on our podcast series. So today's episode, we again we were talking about the history of container shipping. Bill Rooney, thank you very much for joining me. That was great. I really enjoyed it. It's an important topic, and I hope the folks who listen to it enjoy the conversation. Great. Me too. So everyone, please be sure to, to, to follow us on LinkedIn and our other channels to find out when our next episodes will be dropping. Stay tuned.